0: Hello and welcome to episode 190 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thanks for joining me today as we head to Teesside in the northeast of England to look at a really shocking crime which took place in Middlesbrough just after the turn of the century. But first, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially those new members of that most exclusive club, that is Alison and Gary, Barbara, Janine Sengendo. Bridget Braund, Harriet, Marie Davis, and Felix. Thank you all so much for your support, I really appreciate it. And I've also written another very underwhelming article about experts in true crime. If you have too much time on your hands, do head over to uktruecrime.com for a quick look. Let's set some context for today's story. Can you guess the month and year? In music, the UK number one was Breathe from Blue Cantrell featuring Sean Paul. In the US, it was Beyonce with Crazy in Love. I watched a Glastonbury set from 2011 the other day. A seriously impressive show, I reckon, and I'm not the greatest fan. The top selling album in Australia this year was Innocent Eyes from Delta Gudrum. And in the news this month, a car bomb exploded in the Indonesian capital of Jakarta, outside the Marriott Hotel, killing 12 and injuring 150. Ronaldo made his debut for Man United in a 4 0 victory over Bolton. Never heard of him. And tragedy struck as footballer Jimmy Davis died at just 21 when he was travelling to Watford for their opening game of the season when he collided with a lorry on the M40 in Oxfordshire. In UK True Crime News, police use a taser for the first time this month. And the Hutton inquiry into the recent death of weapons expert Dr. David Kelly, chaired by Judge Lord Hutton open for evidence. Tricky one this week I think, but did you get the month and the year? It was August 2003. Our story today starts in the north of Scotland in Inverness. It was the early hours of the 12th of August 2003 at about 1.30am when a police car was on a routine journey in Inverness when it was flagged down by a middle-aged man. Identifying himself to the officers as 47-year-old George Legis, to their astonishment, he told them that he left his home in Middlesbrough for Cornwall a couple of days ago and arrived in Inverness the day before. And that it was important that he spoke to them immediately as he wanted to report a murder that he had committed. Legis explained how he suffered from mood swings and depression and had knifed a sex worker to death at his home in Middlesbrough a few days earlier and had left her body there. He told them he'd killed her, as he'd been lax to his medication. Leegers was taken into custody, so that the officers could check out his story, and the local police contacted their colleagues in Middlesbrough. Later that morning, at around 10am, their colleagues in Teesside forced entry into Leegers' house, near the centre of the city, fearing the very worst. And unfortunately, it was an awful scene that confronted them, the sights and smells they would never forget. In front of them lay the decomposing body of a young woman on the bed, covered with a duvet with a pillow over her face. Beside the bed was a blood-stained German army bayonet, which they learnt had belonged to the man's father, and which he had used to stab the woman to death. The police search also located the hundreds of the daily lithium tablets that Leijers was supposed to be taking, but which he had stopped taking about two years ago. They also discovered a personal organiser, in which he had written the following words, Killed again? Should have taken my medication. The dead woman was quickly identified as 19-year-old Sarah Jane Coughlin. A beautiful, popular, caring young person with a captivating smile, she had succumbed to heroin, that most terrible of drugs which she had funded through sex work. And this is what had brought her to this small house in the centre of Middlesbrough, where she met such a violent, terrible death. Her parents John and Janet told the local newspaper that their daughter was always independent and stubborn and knew her own mind, and this had played a part in the lifestyle she had fallen into. John said, She was just a normal girl who got in with the wrong crowd, She was a lovely, beautiful little girl with a smile that would have got her anywhere. She was happy and normal. Everyone used to say just how gorgeous she was. We were very, very proud of her. Janet added that growing up she'd always been very caring, saying She wanted to be a nurse. She was always very helpful to me when she was growing up. Things started to go wrong when Sarah reached adolescence. At 14, she got in with the wrong crowd. She started stopping out late and then she started staying over at friends' houses. Then she would drink and smoke outside shops. She would phone and tell us what she was doing. We sometimes had to send the police to get her. But as they tried to keep her away from this behaviour and this crowd, Sarah's stubbornness came through and she pushed further away. John said, she didn't like my rules. The higher I set the barriers, the harder she would push against them. She wasn't stupid, she was streetwise, but she was stubborn and independent. She was just a normal kid who got out of her depth and there are a lot of them out there, just like her, who need to be cared for. In the end, Sarah left home when she was just 15 and would rarely contact her parents. And then her dad made the discovery that his daughter was working as a sex worker on the streets in Borough Road, the main red light area of Middlesbrough at the time and he actually saw her on the streets himself when driving with his wife to Bingo along the road. A devastating discovery for any parent. John said, It broke my heart when I saw her. I think it was her way of telling us what she was doing, and to let us know that she was still there, and she was okay. I didn't want to drive past her, but I did to make sure she was alright. And the couple had seen signs that Sarah could have returned home, and potentially beaten her addiction especially after she called and asked to spend that Christmas with her parents. But instead, Sarah met George Leger in the early hours of August 6th, 2003, and he killed her. This was terrible enough news for her parents, but they were shocked when they learnt that this wasn't Leger's first serious offence. Leger's had killed before, and yet he was a free man when he met their daughter. So just who was George Leger? He was the son of a former German prisoner of war who stayed on in Britain after World War II, marrying a local woman from Hartlepool. He stayed in the northeast, and Leija was brought up in the Hartlepool area before joining the army as a teenager. But that didn't work out well, as he didn't have the discipline needed to be a success in the forces. In particular, all his life he tended to just disappear for a few days when the going got tough and when that didn't change in the army, he was soon kicked out. Coming back to Teesside, he moved around in a number of different jobs, working at a steelworks, then a chemical plant before becoming a miner. In 1975, he got his first conviction from stealing from his dad, for which he was put on probation, and another in 1986 when he was convicted of robbing an elderly lady at Knife Point. He married his wife Rita, by all accounts a lovely woman, whose friends and family failed to understand just what she saw in him. But their first child, named after his stepsister who died at just 16, died after 18 hours. The couple did eventually have three children, but that didn't seem to affect his selfish nature. His habit of disappearing remained, and he often left home for days at a time when his gyro arrived and he kept the money all for himself. He would come back when he was ready, usually with a decent haircut, which wasn't cheap, and nice new clothes. Rita's sister said, There were times when Rita had no money to feed the children and he didn't seem to care. He did eventually go to prison for a knife attack on a train near Kings Cross station and just six weeks after his release, 30-year-old Leija had killed his 29-year-old wife. He bludgeoned her over the head with an ornament as she slept, lying next to their young son, following an argument. And true to form, he left the scene, before later giving himself up to police at Whitby several hours later. And this wasn't the first time he'd been violent towards his wife, had he'd strangled her in the weeks ahead of her death, but stopped just in time to let her live. After her death in 1986, Rita's family told how he was a complete control freak who had attacked her at least four times with a heavy Buddha statuette at their home in County Durham. Her sister said, Rita made me promise to take care of the kids if anything ever happened to her. Once she told me, I know something is going to happen to me, but she refused to come and stay with me. About nine months before she was killed, she was making the bed when he tried to smother her with a pillow. She kicked him in the private parts and escaped, but she went back to him. The way she saw it was that she was married to him and had their children, and she should be with him. But part of that was the hold he seemed to have over her, to the extent that she would do anything for him. After being found guilty of the manslaughter of Rita at his trial, which took place at Teesside Crown Court in April 1987, the judge, Mr. Justice Taylor, said he thought the tragedy could have been avoided if probation officers and doctors ensured that Legis received the proper levels of psychiatric treatment. The words used are interesting as he said the killing was less due to wickedness but due to mental illness. Legis was ordered to be detained indefinitely in a secure hospital unit. But as time went on, the health professionals felt that with his medication he was making good progress in the secure hospital. And just six years later, he was released to a specialist nursing home where staff described him as an absolute model resident, saying they were unsure why he was even there when he appeared so totally normal. From there, under supervision, he moved to his own terraced house in Montrose Street, towards the centre of Middlesbrough and on the fringes of the red light district. This was supported accommodation run by a mental health charity. And by 1999, his progress was deemed so good that he was formally discharged from his court order, although he chose to still maintain contact with the monitoring team. He developed a social life mixing at two local pubs, Scruffy Murphy's and the Princess Alice. And he would go to quiet places where he could walk without being disturbed enjoying the solitude of being at one with nature out in the wild. The health and care professionals continued to be impressed by him, and by March 2003, they discharged him totally from their care, leaving him to manage his own life however he saw fit. And to those living nearby, he was just a middle-aged, quiet, pleasant man who minded his own business and kept himself to himself. They were unaware that he was a man who had brutally killed his wife and had the capacity to murder again. And it was just six months after this full discharge when he met Sarah. The day before the murder, he went to see one of his former supervisors, Mrs Fellows. She gave him a haircut and they chatted normally as he shared with her that he was going to Scotland the following day. Later, he was seen in a local pub where witnesses again reported There didn't seem to be anything out of the usual with him. He was just being his normal self. It later transpired that he told a friend at the pub previously that he did not want to get seriously involved with a woman again as he could not be sure that it would not happen again. In this case, the it was a reference to voices telling him to kill as he said they had done in relation to his wife. So he was telling people about his past. And although he wasn't looking for a relationship, he did buy the services of the, at the time, large number of sex workers who tended to operate close by. Legis met Sarah after leaving the pub in the early hours of the 6th of August, outside the local news agents they'd both visited. They negotiated an arrangement for her services and went to his house and into the bedroom, where they began to have sex. Quite what happened next is unclear, but what is known is that Legis killed Sarah after subjecting her to what was later said in court to be torture, pricking her repeatedly with his dad's old bayonet before stabbing her to death. The cause of her death was Legis stabbing her in each side of her neck and her upper body into her heart. Legis himself told police that the killing took up to 45 minutes. Her neighbours heard Sarah sobbing in terror throughout the ordeal. It must have been an utterly terrifying way for Sarah to die, alone, in this unfamiliar house, with this scary and violent man. After the murder, Leijers returned to the same newsagent where he'd met Sarah, but he looked distinctly out of sorts, telling the newsagent he was shaken as he had fallen down the stairs and a little later, at about 8.30 that morning, he headed to his fortnightly injection of the antipsychotic medication, which was a condition of his release. He seemed fine when he was there, according to members of staff, except that he was rubbing his right hand, which he explained by saying that he'd been jumped by a drug addict when he was making his way back from the pub the night before. He was seen by other witnesses in the coming days, including at his home on the 9th of August, before telling his ex-worker Mrs Fellows he was going to Scotland the day before he handed himself into police. I wonder what he was thinking and planning for those days between the murder and surrendering. And if he hadn't given himself up to officers, would he have got away with Sarah's murder? I wonder. At his trial, the experts differed in their views about Leisure's mental state when he killed Sarah. One of them, Professor Gunn, said he had suffered from severe mental abnormality over a period of at least 30 years. He diagnosed personality disorder, mood disorder and hallucinations. But another psychiatrist, Dr Stephen Barlow, concluded the opposite. He said there was no objective evidence that he was suffering from any mental illness at the time of the killing. The jury were showing the similarities between the two apparent motiveless murders he'd committed. Both involved his sexual partner in his bedroom, and after each he'd wandered off before giving himself up to police. Although Rita had been killed with an ornament and Sarah with a bayonet, there had been a knife kept under his bed when he killed his wife. The jury had to decide whether he'd recovered from his previous mental illness or had he in fact managed to fool mental health professionals into believing he was cured, when he was in fact still unwell. And the stakes were pretty high for Leachers, with a conviction for manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility likely to mean the comfortable surroundings of a secure hospital, with the potential for early release. But murder would leave him with a very different future, in the much tougher environment of a mainstream jail surrounded by other prisoners who would know exactly what he had done with little prospect of release. It was for the jury to decide and as Franz Muller QC said to the jury we do not have trial by doctors, they are here to assist you but ultimately it is your decision, not theirs. And the jury of six men and six women took just three hours to find him guilty of murdering 19-year-old Sarah Jane Cochrane. Branding the 47 year old a great danger to the public and young women in particular, the recorder of Middlesbrough, Peter Fox QC, told him that in his case, life means life. Legis, wearing the same white polo shirt he had worn throughout the two week trial, stood quietly in the dock with his head bowed and showed no reaction as his full life term was handed down. The judge told Legers, this was a dreadful torture and killing. And referring to his own admission that the assault had lasted up to 45 minutes, the judge said this was corroborated by the evidence of his neighbours, who had heard Sarah sobbing through the wall. It was his judgement that Legers had used the bayonet to torture her, pricking her with its point, before stabbing her in the neck and body and finally through the heart. As you may recall, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, I struggle with the agencies who, as usual, all made statements afterwards about the need for reviews, learn from mistakes, etc. etc. But I think you know just how many people in authority took responsibility for their actions that led to Sarah's murder. Who knows? Maybe one day someone will, but I won't hold my breath, will you? And on appeal, Leija's sentence was reduced to 21 years, but I think it's still highly likely that he will die in prison. I think we should leave the final words to Sarah's distraught dad, John, who spoke of the dangers faced by all our children, saying, Every one of those girls is putting their lives at risk by doing this, but it is the heroin that is really killing them. They wouldn't need to do it if it wasn't for the drugs. We feel that Sarah was let down by the authorities because there wasn't enough help out there for her. He urged kids on the street and their parents to stay in touch. It's too late for us to say what we want to say to Sarah. No parent should have to go through this. If we can get that message out, then at least Sarah hasn't died for nothing. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Whenever I cover a story where someone has murdered before and is free to kill again, my heart always goes out to the family of those who have lost that person dear to them after the authorities have deemed the criminal is safe to be a free member of society. And as for the official reports, well, as you can guess, it's probably best if we move on. I'm sure these people do things for the right reasons, I just struggle with the lack of accountability. I do wonder what Legis thinks when he reflects on what he did, do you? Poor Sarah was just 19 when she died. If she had managed to kick the heroin, and with the help of her loving family, there was a chance that she could have done so, then she had so much to live for. As you listen to this now, she would still have been under 40. The life she was living as a sex worker in Middlesbrough at the time was a terrible existence with violent customers, pitiful rates for her services, as little as £5, and all her money used to fund her drugs habits. And her death must have been so scary for her. I think we sometimes forget just how terrifying the reality must be as the attack started when she was in a vulnerable position in the bed of her customer. At what moment did she realise that she wasn't getting out of that house alive? What were the final images? she saw before she died. Thoughts like this must be so terrible for her family and friends. We wish them well. And for us, the listeners to this podcast, the name Sarah Jane Coughlin will not be forgotten. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please head to the Facebook group to discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support the show, please get over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. You hear me thank my supporters here every week, as it is their support that has allowed me to upgrade my technology to make your listening a much better experience. If you don't know what Patreon is and you haven't looked at it before, there is loads of exclusive content there, and it will cost the equivalent of a cup of coffee a month and can be cancelled any time. Check it out. Take a look at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that is all for me for this week. The temperature and rain in Edinburgh today has made it feel like autumn. It's enough to make you think lovingly of the reassuring heat of the Rochdale sauna, isn't it? Isn't it? Is it? (laughs) Anyway, on that bombshell, that is all for me for this week. So until we speak again next week, take it easy. And despite all the others, I do know how hard it is. Please do stay classy. Cheerio.